Hey everyone, it's Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. So I have a really fun piece today. It was supposed to be out yesterday, but I got a little bit sick. So it's out today and it's me and Joey. And we did a joint newsletter together on our Substacks. Joey's one of my good friends. I think he's brilliant. I cite his newsletter in my own work all the time. He does such a good job at going really in depth on these ideas. Highly recommend that you check out his work if you're like, yeah, economics is my favorite thing in the entire world. And even if you're like, whoa, economics is kind of confusing. I think Joey does a really good job at breaking all of that down. And so we just kind of get into the weeds today of everything from crypto wealth to stagflation to is this the 1970s and we provide our two different perspectives yeah i hope that you enjoy it let me know your thoughts below and i'm going to include greatest hits and then i'm going to include the full interview go ahead and skip around in the tagged parts of the uh what is it called audio video you know me so see you soon that's giving me like the welcome to twitter spaces <laughs> 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 is Bitcoin slash ETH slash crypto wealth too concentrated? Wealth concentration is everywhere. There's a lot of wealth concentration in the crypto space, but it's not any worse than the United States or other countries. Dogecoin, which was one of the most unequal currencies in terms of wealth concentration, had the same wealth inequality as the United States. Whales and VC firms putting influence on massive projects to kind of get what they want. They're trying to like coordinate on platforms platforms are trying to drive prices down. I think that that power dynamic in the crypto space is, is only kind of getting worse. Is this similar slash different from the 1970s? We're just sort of at the beginning of what's going to happen. And I think it ends up being bad data analysis. <laughs> Because what happened in the past is often like so detached from what's going on right now. It's just sort of like over overfitting pattern seeking. How do you square rising commodity and NFT prices? If you're a regular person and you're worried about paying your gas bill and all of a sudden somebody is buying a picture of board ape for millions and millions of dollars, that's not going to feel super awesome for you. Food access and energy are super important and they're the common denominators to every human. I think that there needs to be just as much investment in these sort of common denominator things like sustainable food sources, sustainable energy, as we have maybe in like the Web3 space. The social construct of property rights in the like commodity space is designed to get you to produce more commodities. When prices go up, people want more copper. It incentivizes you to go out and find more. The problem I think is that when NFT prices go up, it doesn't incentivize you to like make better art or invest time in, you know, good research or information. The Fed independence being at stake, it feels like everything is becoming increasingly political and monetary policy is become sort of an election cycle within itself. That's my long-term worry is that they're going to be infected by the same sort of like hyper-partisan, hyper-polarized social media narratives that a lot of political organizations have been uh, poisoned by. What's going on with home prices? Why are they so high? A lot of this is a result of constrained supply, obviously. Wealthy boomers uh, and millennials are aging into homes. 2008 was not really like a pure housing bubble. Like it was a lot of credit risk. It was, uh, you know, people securitizing things that they weren't supposed to securitize. About 25% fewer housing starts per person than there were in 2000. That's close to 40% below with the peak in like 2006. If you just looked at like, the Tokyo metropolitan area, that builds more housing units in the entire state of California, which is just crazy. 
but that's like the level of construction that you need in an advanced economy to make sure that real housing costs aren't rising. And that's like something we don't have. How will the lessons of 2021 slash 2022 affect how the Fed goes moving forward? People watch Fed meetings like the Super Bowl. And then also mechanically, the Fed owns a large portion of the bond market. My fear is that they kind of overlearn the lesson of 2020. One, and they say, okay, well, here we stimulated the economy too much. The next time there's a crisis, we have to be extra careful that we don't stimulate the economy too much. What is your advice for students who want to do what you do? <laughs> I think that a lot of people find a lot of things interesting, but that's really different than applied curiosity. So I would just say like the things that you find interesting, try to become curious about them because you can really learn a lot that way and, and just explore as you can. All, all the documented evidence is like the longer that you, you spend consciously studying something, the better you get at it. And so if you really are truly passionate about a certain topic, like you should go as far as you can in the academic world with it. So like make some good friends and, and spend a lot of time with them. This is the last question. What is your hottest take that doesn't have to do with finance or econ? I really love people. Like I think humans are super beautiful and lovely and amazing. I think that everyone does have a passion, but we haven't been encouraged or usually supported to explore that. When I was like, what's your hot take? I was basically like, oh, ho hockey's the best sport. Here's why. <laughs> so completely unrelated. I think now is like a good opportunity as the pandemic is waning to like go out and try to make up for lost time. The first question that we talked about in the newsletter is Bitcoin slash ETH slash crypto wealth too concentrated. And we had relatively different views on this. So I am invested in crypto. I really like crypto. And my my take was that wealth the concentration is everywhere. So it's actually gotten pretty bad in the United States because you just have sort of this concentration of wealth at the top, right? Like the top 1% that's become an increasingly bad problem. Um, Statista, I think it's pronounced. They have a pretty good graph on that, but I include in the tweet thread. And basically we're in a situation where that is probably going to get even worse, where inflation is going to hit lower income consumers the hardest. So the disparity is going to continue to grow, right? In corporate stock ownership. So this is a well-known fact that the more wealthy that you are, the more stock that you own. And as stocks continue their rapid ascent, that's going to, to lead to increasing wealth concentration at the top as well. There was a really good research paper from, I think it's Cy Buckley and Laguerre. Sorry if I pronounced those names wrong, but they they sort of did this big analysis around the Gini coefficient and all this stuff around wealth inequality in the crypto space, because you'll hear a lot like crypto whales take up most of their crypto wealth. <laughs> and the whole analysis there was like, okay, sure, right? Like, sure, there's a lot of wealth concentration in the crypto space, but it's not any worse than the United States or other countries, uh, developing nation, developed nations, right? So the Dogecoin, which was one of the most unequal currencies in terms of wealth concentration, had the same wealth inequality as the United States. Crypto is created to sort of address this wealth inequality thing amongst many other things, right? Economic freedom. To say that crypto is inherently unequal fiat system arguably could be just as unequal. I'll pass the mic over to you, Joey, on that one. I think on the first point, I think there is obviously a lot of wealth inequality in the traditional finances, if you want to call it that, in the in the um, total economy. I think crypto ends up exacerbating that a bit. And I think the, the worrying trends you have is that it's kind of 
of getting worse at a point when, in my opinion, in the United States as a whole, it's getting better. So if you were to look at, say, like wage growth in the United States, among low-income people, it's higher than among higher-income people. If you look at like wealth inequality measures, for a little bit, they were improving there because people in like the lower middle classes of America were getting additional government support, and you had rising wages, and before too long, like the the that rising asset value carries over into lower wealth inequality. I think the, the flip side of that in the crypto space is that you're seeing a lot of projects now that launch with like massive pre-mines or like where the founders or the like VC firm that back this crypto ends up with like 25%, which even if you're saying like Bitcoin is very unequal, it's always, by the way, it's always hard to get these exact data points because crypto is like pseudonymous. You don't know exactly who everybody is, but you can kind of guesstimate and it's not, you can get some accurate numbers from there. But like, if you have this system where increasingly every new coin, every new project seems to have more backers that are extremely wealthy and a larger share of the assets are going to those backers, it eventually kind of impacts the functioning of the system. I think it hasn't so far because crypto as like a monetary system doesn't have that much network usage comparatively. It's mostly people holding it as an asset, not trying to actually spend it. And so the wealth inequality doesn't matter in, a, in the same way that sort of wealth inequality in the US does in like the traditional financial system. But I think it's mattering more and more. And I think you see that with like whales and VC firms, like putting influence on massive projects to kind of get what they want. They're trying to like coordinate on platforms. They're trying to drive prices down. They're carving, you know, things out of smart contracts because it benefits them. And I think that that power dynamic in the crypto space is, is only kind of getting worse. Yeah, I think that's a super good point like the private token sales and all that stuff, it just leads to a lot of wealth concentration. And there are, I think that it's super important, especially as you think about the ethos of the space is, is to, to not have that happen. So let's go on to the next question. So is this similar slash different from the 1970s? So this is a question that I think a lot of people are trying to parse around. So the 1970s was a massive commodity shock, right? Oil prices quadrupled. Then you had the entire economic system get vulgared where interest rates spiked and you know the whole goal was to bring down this massive inflation but you also had stagflation where there was low economic growth and really high prices and things were just you know essentially stagnant right so there was a pretty good odd lots podcast on this i'm gonna mispronounce his last name but victor shevitz where he was talking about you know the labor market is completely different and asset prices are completely different and we have a massive wealth inequality now but it is a different economic system but we also have a war that is going on right and we also have our own commodity shocks I mean, we have skewed demographics where we have an aging population and we do have inflation, obviously, but without much wage growth. So I think the thing is, is like, it, it's different, but it's also similar. So we do have, like I just said, the shock in commodity prices, but it's a little bit different than the 1970s because our supply side inflation should hopefully ease at some point. China's COVID situation, I think, is becoming increasingly a, a massive concern and becoming increasingly worse. There's a lot of good threads this morning out there on that situation. And then the war, like, when is that going to end? thinking of all the people in Ukraine who are suffering through that right now as well. And there's a risk that things could not be okay. Bullard came out the other day, who is a member of the Federal Reserve, and he was like, the 1970s Fed is completely different than this Fed. He thinks that this Fed is way more credible than the 1970s Fed, which should be good, right? Like part of the reason that the Fed even conducts monetary po po policy is because they have this credibility, right? And or part of like what they come out and speak so much and so often is because they're using their credibility as another tool in their toolkit and using their, <laughs> their slam poetry session 
conversations to, to try and get things across. But I think that, you know, we're just sort of at the beginning of what's going to happen. I think that a lot of these worries have, have just sort of begun because it's going to take a while to recover from China's COVID situation. And then what does that look like for the rest of the world? And then Russia and the war and all of that stuff. And there's a lot of debt now too. And debt servicing costs are going to tick up. And I think that could be concerning. You see consumer credit, people are really starting to spend a lot of money. So I think that there's just a lot of variables that are going into this, but it's not the exact same ecosystem as the 1970s. And in my opinion, what do you think? Jay? Yeah, yeah, I think we we ended up coming to the same conclusion from different angles on this one, where I also think there's there's like a tendency, like I think a natural human tendency to go and say, okay, here's this, this crisis, there's a similar thing that happened in the past, what happened then? How can I learn from it? And I think it ends up being bad data analysis. <laughs> Because what happened in the past is often like so detached from what's going on right now, like the 1970s, 50 years ago, you know, and it would be very hard for someone in the 1950s to be like, wow, this is the 1900s again. It's just sort of like over overfitting pattern seeking. And the big differences from the 1970s, I think are, are underappreciated. The first one being like real economy stuff, like the 1970s were an era where you had really robust population growth on top of really robust labor force growth, labor force participation rates from women entering the workforce. You had like a massive influx of workers in the United States. And the like labor market situation now is complete opposite, where like the working age population isn't growing, isn't projected to grow for like the next 20 years. <laughs> it's going to stay exactly where it is for the time being. And that complaint about like stagflation, in my mind, it's it wasn't so much, you know, you had low economic growth, low GDP growth and inflation. It was that you had high unemployment and inflation. That high unemployment is partially reflecting on the fact that the labor force was growing so quickly, but it's also partly that there was a completely different labor market. And you're looking at right now, it's really hard to say that there's like stagflation in the same way when the unemployment rate's like 3.5%, when when Prime age employment ratios are basically where they were right before the pandemic, very close, but not quite there. So it's really hard to say, hey, this is a similar situation to the 1970s when the labor market situation is completely different. The flip side of that is I think the, the monetary policy situation, I think it's underappreciated how like radically new the 1970s monetary policy was. Obviously, you talk about like leaving the gold standard finally completely. In reality, like convertibility to gold wasn't a big issue in, in the, the 1960s. But it is true that you had this like international monetary system that was relatively new and people at the Federal Reserve had uh, comparatively less understanding of what was going on and people at central banks across the world had comparatively less understanding of the macro economy than they do right now. And so like I put a graph in that piece just to try to drill the point home. If you think about like NGDP per person growth. So what was the Basically, if you think about what was the rate of spending increases in the economy during the 1970s, it basically clocks in at like 10% a year for almost a decade. That's a situation where it's almost inevitable to have inflation if people are spending 10% more money every year. <laughs> Prices of things are going to go up. And the flip side is like it, the US has barely ever crossed 5% nominal spending increases since the turn of the millennium. And right now you have like obviously a big, a big jump, but from a low base where the economy was this time last year, where there was a lot less spending. And you have a situation where, you know, the Federal Reserve, I think their mental model is that there's too much spending in the economy right now. That's why they're tightening policy. And that was 
very much not the mental model of the 1970s. You can sort of see that, not necessarily with the fetishing, but, you know, Dudley and Sultan both being like, it's time for <laughs> asset prices to get wrecked. So not really about spending, right, but just about excess in general. So yeah, I think those are all super good points. And, and the graph, it, I think, Joey, do you have the graph in the thread that you were talking about? Is it the 1970s again? So the next question that we're going to talk about is how do you square rising commodity and NFT prices? So basically, right, like I think everybody is, is pretty aware that we've had huge increases in commodity prices and we've seen a little bit of a pullback in those recently. And then there's also been a massive run up in NFT prices. And how do you sort of think about those two things in, in context of one another? So I, I wrote a little bit about the mint, minting, the Royal Mint, <laughs> which I thought was funny that the mint is going to mint something, but the Royal Mint is going to potentially create an NFT. So the United Kingdom can sort of step up as a crypto hub and, and sort of take a rightful place in the crypto asset space. There was a lot of pushback to that because people were like, hey, <laughs> there's a global energy crisis going on right now. And it's kind of weird to us that you're talking about minting an NFT because that doesn't seem like the right thing to do when, when people are, you know, hungry or, you know, worried about running out of fuel. I personally think it's a good thing for governments to explore crypto and to learn more about how they can incorporate it and whether that's minting an NFT or, you know, exploring CBDCs more in depth. I think those are all good things to do. But I've also written before on how polarizing crypto can be. I wrote this piece called The Polarization of the Crypto Narrative. And it was in response to this piece called Line Goes Up by Folding Ideas, who's a pretty big YouTube account. And he had talked about, you know, how all of this stuff that goes on in the crypto space, like NFTs, you know, the pictures of monkeys going for millions of dollars. Like when you try to square that against, you know, if you're a regular person and you're worried about paying your gas bill and all of a sudden somebody is buying, you know, a picture of board ape for millions and millions of dollars, that's not going to feel super awesome for you, right? Like you're kind of like, oh, gross, man, this sucks. People are allowed to do, this is not like an opinion on that, right? But people are allowed to do what they want with their money, but it's, you know, the narrative, it's the feeling around that. And so I think that sort of circles back to this with this wealth gap issue that we have, you know, there's the haves and, and the haves not. And when you see people purchasing NFTs, it can sometimes feel like telling the world to eat cake, right? Or when the Royal Mint is talking about minting an NFT versus whatever they should be doing during an energy crisis, it can feel kind of icky. And I would say that crypto is a useful tool, right? For developing and developed nations, but it's also a little bit difficult to have disposable income to, to play around in crypto if you can't even afford a gas bill, right? If, if you can't even afford to put gas in your car, you can't afford to heat your home. So I think that is just like something that we have to, the world has to keep in mind when you think about how crypto proceeds, especially in light of this potential energy crisis, food crisis that, that is coming forward is like, how do you sort of square those two things? And so I did not answer this question probably the best way because I it was more of like, here's my thoughts on all these things together right now. But I think the thing is like, people are seeking safe havens during times of volatility. NFTs can serve as a point of, of structure for that. But then you also see like people going into GME and AMC as, as a safe haven of sorts as well. So I think the, what I would say is like a final sentence here, because this is a rather roundabout answer and it, it doesn't really answer the question because I don't know if there is an answer. Food access and energy are super important and they're the common denominators to every human. And I think to Joey's earlier point about, you know, venture capital spending and you, you are seeing like more VC funds begin to pop up around, you know, climate tech and et cetera. But I think that there needs to be just as much investment in these sort of common denominator things like sustainable food sources, sustainable energy, as we have maybe in like the Web3 space or like more media around that. So that that's how I would square the two or how I would rectangle them and draw a big circle around them maybe. Joey, what do you think about all that? I think it's pretty funny because for a lot of the crypto stuff, we kind of like good cop, bad cop it, where I was saying something that was like a little harsher than, than what you would say. But I think on this point, my 
gripe with NFTs doesn't come from this idea that there's like enforced digital scarcity, even like the like money for JPEGs idea. And just like stick with me for a second. I'm, I'm going somewhere. But like commodity prices are rising because we have a strong macroeconomy after like a decade of having a weak one. There's a lot of demand for goods because people are still stuck at home more due to the pandemic. Obviously, there's a, like 100,000 supply shocks that you could go through here. But I think very few people would say, look at that and say, well, then spending on say Netflix or like Disney Plus is is a waste. Even though the core transaction at the heart of, of Disney Plus is like you're exchanging money for an infinitely reproducible piece of digital media that you could just download you know, illegally, <laughs> not encouraging this, but it's a thing that people can do. And I think that the correct gripe with NFTs is not that they're trying to like enforce digital scarcity. They enforce digital scarcity in a really, really bad way, in a way that doesn't promote the kind of productive investment that something even like Disney Plus does. Like people spend a lot of money on Disney Plus because they really like the shows, because they value the entertainment. And Disney spends like however many billions of dollars to produce shows that people like, the essence of an economic win-win. The NFT space is governed by this separate law where people are consuming it not based on whether they they like it as a piece of digital media they're doing it because of popularity based on their expected resale value you know they're getting into it because they expect that they can sell it at a later date for a profit and that's mostly it and so you the the popularity and price of NFTs is like totally unanchored from their value as an entertainment platform you know people pay however much for Disney Plus because that's how much however much they value all the shows that are there instead with NFTs it's how much you pay is how much you expect to be able to sell it to somebody else in the future. And then so much of it ends up just being like these AI generated things that have like really big social media marketing teams because they want to get money into the system. And then underpinning that system is like an order of magnitude, more energy consumption and a ton more, you know, programming effort than a similar thing that could be done for, that's done for Disney Plus, a similar thing that's done for like every video game that has a microtransaction or every piece of digital media that you can, you know, buy at the Steam store or wherever you want to talk about it. And I think all property rights are social constructs. The social construct of property rights in the like commodity space is designed to get you to produce more commodities. When prices go up, people want more copper. It incentivizes you to go out and find more. The problem I I think is that when NFT prices go up, it doesn't incentivize you to like make better art or invest time in, you know, good research or information in the way that like purchasing entertainment traditional ways does. It ends up just being a more inefficient system for something that like a paywall or like simple microtransactions usually accomplishes. So this is, that was my long-winded way of saying that like, I think you can square them, but I think I'm like much more skeptical that they will end up being similar things where you see high commodity prices end up being an incentive for people to actually go out and create things that people want in the real world and mm. high NFT prices don't have that same knock-on effect. I really liked your thesis around that, like, you know, commodity prices incentivizing people to build versus not to build. I think that's a super interesting way to think about it. We're going to talk first about the Fed independence being at stake. The Fed is super interesting. And I think that they've become increasingly important over the past however many years. It just seems like the market loves the Fed. They love Jerome Powell. And every time that one of them comes out to speak, something happens within the market. But the Fed's structure, so the, the question was, is the Fed independent uh, or is the Fed's independence at stake? And the Fed's structure is sort of pseudo-independent. So technically, specifically, scientifically, 
basically. It's known as independent within the government. So they got their power from the 1913 Federal Reserve Act, where Congress was like, hey, Fed, you can take care of regulating money. The Fed is not funded by Congress. They're self-funded through interest earned on securities, et cetera. So they're not really reliant on the government for money. And they don't really need to check with the government. Like they do have these semi-annual testimonies that they'll do where Congress people will grill them about inflation and be like, hey, you're not doing enough. And the Fed also serves 14-year terms. And the whole point of that is so they make long-term decisions, right? So like they're not in that short-termism that seems to impact most of our political space. But they do get that oversight from Congress. So they're they're not purely independent, right? They're sort of pseudo-independent. And you saw that pretty starkly when Sarah Bloom Raskin was, you know, denied uh, or she withdrew from her Fed seat because of the Congress intervention and Congress saying things, right? And so is the Fed independent? Sort of. Yes, they have their dual mandate, which is price stability, maximum employment, and everyone wants to make sure that politicians don't really slide in to, to make stuff go their way, because if politicians had it their way, like, <laughs> I think the, the policy decisions would be a lot more intense. And a lot of people don't really like that independence, because it's kind of like, oh, we don't even elect these people, and they're making these pretty big decisions about money, and what the heck is up with that? Like, that seems a little bit weird, like, we should have a say in that. And that's why the Fed testifies in front of Congress twice a year, so Congress can grill them and say, like, hey, okay, this is what needs to happen, this is what we're seeing from our constituents. And so I think that the question with the Fed's independence is really like, are they doing the best thing for the American people? That's why government exists, hypothetically, to do the best thing for their people. I think a lot of people think that the Fed is, is trying their best. I, I would say like they've fallen out of favor a little bit over the past couple of months and years, but I think everything does get clouded by incentives because politics are everywhere. And I do think that the Fed has become increasingly a political football because you know they're using intermeeting minutes to sort of announce monetary policy decisions that are really impactful, like saying, oh, we, we could have done 50 basis points last time. Like, I, I feel like that's just like a big thing to say. And like, it makes sense, their, their minutes, that's what they talked about. But it feels like everything is becoming increasingly political and monetary policy has become sort of an election cycle within itself. Joey, what do you think about the Fed's independence? I, I think it's a, a bit of a worrying long-term trend. So on the first part is I don't really worry about them losing independence, like losing sway to, to elected political leaders because of policy failures. I think you see a lot of central banks have like really, really bad policy failures and they don't end up losing any independence. I'm just thinking like the, the euro crisis is a good example. 2008 is a good example. The Bank of Japan basically for the last 30 years <laughs> on and off is a good example. All of those have like substantial monetary policy failures had really negative impacts on the economy of constituent countries, constituent political bodies. And in none of those situations did you have like the independence of the central bank challenged in a, a serious way. That's, you know, that's why they're independent is partially because you don't want people to uh, be able to intervene after a crisis and take control. The flip side of that is like very often the opposite will happen. You'll have like a central bank that loses independence and then there's a monetary policy crisis. I think that's kind of what you see in Turkey right now where you have like the think we're on the fourth central bank governor that's just been sacked constituently. Eventually people realize that like, yeah, the central bank governor, if they're getting sacked this often, is definitely not in charge of what's going on. And people lose trust in, in monetary policy and in the currency. The thing I really worry about long-term is that I don't think there is anything left in the social media age that can be both salient 
and unpolarized. If it's salient, it's polarized. That's like almost an iron law. And I think the salience of like political actions in the social media age has made it a lot more difficult to pass, you know, normal laws in the United States, but also abroad because people are so concerned about the next election and because like the, the partisan bases of both parties are very resistant to compromise. The second order effect of that, if you think about the US, like it's really difficult to pass laws. If you're a politician, if you're if you're an interest group and it's become really difficult to pass laws, how do you get your policies passed? You got to go find somebody, find some political entity that doesn't have to uh, <laughs> work through past laws. In the U.S., that's been the Supreme Court, where like the Supreme Court has gotten radically more polarized recently. Congress can't pass laws, so they shift it off to the Supreme Court. Then whatever the Supreme Court says becomes much more important politically, and then people in Congress get sort of polarized on that line. And I think you're kind of seeing that with, with central banks. So like, as an example, the government of New Zealand instituted a, a mandate in the Reserve Bank of New Zealand that they had to control housing prices. And the the, the uh, British government inserted a mandate for the Bank of England that they had to support like the net zero um, and climate transition projects. And like completely putting aside whatever you think about those two goals or policies, it's like a really uncomfortable expansion of central bank authority in my mind. And it's a situation where elected leaders can't get something done. They see the Bank of England, Reserve Bank of New Zealand, the Federal Reserve as an effective institution. And so they push the things they can't get done onto them. And then I think that the other things you're seeing that same level of like polarization around nominees, people forget this. It's kind of in like memory hold, but like Trump not reappointing Janet Yellen was like a major break with tradition for the Federal Reserve. And that was a serious thing. I think Jerome Powell has done a fantastic job. I'm not trying to comment on him, but I'm just trying to say that it's like a weird, it was a break from tradition. It was like a little bit loss of independence there. And I think you're seeing a similar thing with like the number of appointees to the Fed that whose, whose nomination collapsed completely. And you talked about Sarah Bloom Raskin. Again, completely separate about whether or not you think she should be nominated. It uh, used to be a lot rarer for them to collapse like this, for nominations to collapse like this. And it's sort of become more common. Uh, and so that, that's my long-term worry is that they're going to be infected by the same sort of like hyper-partisan, hyper-polarized social media narratives that a lot of political organizations have been uh, po poisoned by. So the housing bubble, right? Or is it a housing bubble? What's going on with home prices? Why are they so high? It's, in, it's wild to watch it. And I think largely... A lot of this is a result of constrained supply, obviously. Wealthy boomers, um, even though there's wealth disparity in the boomer age group, of course, and then millennials are aging into homes. Like they're kind of at the point where it's like, it makes sense for us to own a home and they want to own that. And I have this graph in the newsletter that shows real estate wealth and how much of it belongs to the boomers. Um, and this is even back in 2019. And I, I imagine it's, it's gotten worse since then. So you also have a ton of shortages in the housing market in general. So Ali Wolf, who's on here, I think her Twitter handle is Ali Wolf Econ, but she has a lot of just like really great tweets where she's like, oh, there's a shortage in doorknobs or there's a shortage in like little plastic things that you're going to put on your chair so you can scoot it back and forth. Like, like there's all these little random shortages. And when people are trying to build a home, that's going to create a lot of problems, right? So that, that's also leading to the, the broader housing bubble crisis is like developers have such a lag between when they actually like want to build versus when they can build. And then there's a whole lot of like mechanics that are around the developer space that I, I don't even know enough about to sort of get into, but basically there's 
constraints across the board in the, in the housing market, whether that comes from policy, whether that comes from shortages, you're just seeing people really try to buy a home. And then there's a ton of anecdotes where an offer for a home and somebody else will come in $150,000 over listing price, cash only, right? And, and it's almost impossible to keep up with that. And that goes back to that point about wealth disparity. And so we're starting to see tightening monetary policy, and that has put upward pressure on mortgage rates. So mortgage rates are up to almost 5% after being around 3.36% around a year ago. So, so pretty big increases in mortgage rates. And that's going to put pressure on people who are applying for mortgages. So we've seen mortgage demand decline about 40% year over year because people are like, wow, it's kind of expensive. And also it's, it's almost impossible to get home in the first place. So I'm just going to tap out and, and not play the game anymore. Hopefully that'll create a little bit of easing in housing prices, give it a little bit of room to breathe. But I think that we're just going to see, you know, borrowing in general become a little bit more expensive. And a lot of people are like, oh, is this 2008, you know, number two because of the increase in home prices in 2008 was not really like a pure housing bubble. Like it was a lot of credit risk. It was, uh, you know, people securitizing things that they weren't supposed to securitize. So I don't think we have that. Like the credit credit worthiness of borrowers is much more improved than it was in 2008. And I think that the consumer is, to our point earlier that we were talking about, is much more financially healthy. So the question becomes like, how do you fix this? I don't know. Like, I guess the, the answer would be you need to build, right? But there's regulations that are in way and that squashes regulation in general tends to squash out a lot of progress or prevent progress from happening. So will this housing bubble burst? Like, will we see home prices decline? Maybe, but also supply and demand is, is a powerful force. And I think people who want to own a home are willing to go pretty far to own that home. So I think this is also sort of the beginning of, of that narrative as well. I think the like fundamental thing for me is the connotation that people have on, on a bubble, which is always a, a bit of problematic. We're like a, a bubble is a distinct thing. Almost by definition, if something is a bubble, eventually it will pop, you know? <laughs> so the interesting question is like, is there a housing bubble? And in my opinion, the answer is no, chiefly because you have a situation in which all of these demand side factors are really strong and all the supply side factors are incredibly weak. So just on that, on the demand half of the question, like you're seeing really rapid growth in household incomes, really rapid growth in employment, really rapid growth in the working age population. And you're seeing a long-term trend where housing, housing demand is stronger. People want bigger homes. That's also been accelerated by like work from home and like the prevalence of the internet age. And people are getting married later, which is something people don't often think about, but it's like, if you, if you get married later, it normally means you're consuming like twice as many housing units <laughs> for at least a short period of time. And people want more space per person. And on the supply side, like the American housing market is not giving people what they want. Basically, <laughs> even during like 2005, 2006, there was not enough building, especially in places like <clears throat> San Francisco or New York City or where I live in Washington, DC, like these major metropolitan areas that are highly desirable nowhere near enough construct. And then post 2008, obviously you had had the crisis, it's like putting aside whatever your beliefs are and what caused the crisis. It's like undeniable that post 2008, the, the level of construction has been a lot, a lot lower. And then I would say post like 2012, it became really clear that even relative to how bad the economy was, construction was even worse. And so you're in a situation now where there's like about 25% fewer housing starts per person than there were in 2000. And, and it's like, that's close to 40% below with the peak in like 2006. The, the difficult part, especially right now, so you talked about all of the supply shortages that people are seeing. There's a really big gap between housing starts and housing completions right now. People are starting units and a lot of these are multifamily units nowadays 
case, it's a higher proportion, but they're, they're starting buildings and they're not able to finish because of all the supply issues and because of how difficult it is to build. And so I think the like the long-term answer has to be if you're if you're in America like a radical increase in the number of housing units constructed. And so if you were to look at like Japan for example, they build vastly more housing units than the entire United States. If you just looked at like the Tokyo metropolitan area, that builds more housing units than the entire state of California, which is just crazy. But that's like the level of construction that you need in an advanced economy to make sure that real housing costs aren't rising. And that's like something we don't have. There's a lot of solutions out there, but like the fundamental core of every solution has to be like a big increase in the number of units. So one of our last questions, how will the lessons of 2021 slash 2022 affect how the Fed goes moving forward? Their dual mandate is dual, right? So they have been focused or they historically were pretty focused on jobs. They really struggled with getting inflation off the ground over the past 10, 10 years or so. I included a picture of this article from CNN where the headline was literally inflation is very, very low. And this is back in 2013. <laughs> and the, the byline was prices aren't going up very much. Should we celebrate? And so the Fed really struggled with getting inflation off the ground. And now we have just like absolutely rampant inflation and, and the Fed is increasingly becoming clearly very concerned about it and making rather big moves in order to try and stem that down. But for a long time, the labor market was like, okay, it was, it was solid, but it wasn't like the greatest thing ever. But now we have like a really strong labor market. As Powell said in one of his recent pressers, which was like an interesting adjective, he said it was unhealthy. And that's mainly because there's just like so many, hypothetically, so many job openings. And, and maybe it's like, who is going to fill all these job openings? And the Fed, as we talked about a little bit earlier, this concept of inflation has become increasingly political. So the narrative of inflation has really taken center stage. And the Fed sort of was like recently, if they they were like, oh, if we can fix inflation, we can fix the jobs market. And so price stability sort of preceded this idea of maximum employment. And I think also to our earlier conversation around the independence of the Fed and the politicization of the Fed, people watch Fed meetings like the Super Bowl. You just see people really get into what the Fed is saying and, and what they're doing. And then also mechanically, the Fed owns a large portion of the bond market. And so I think their portfolio doubled to 36% of GDP last year, and they hold $5.76 trillion and, and treasuries or 24% of the market, which is up from 12% in September of 2019. So, you know, that almost doubled. And then they hold 2.72 trillion in mortgage bonds, which is now 30% of the market. And so all of those are going to begin to roll off and eventually they're going to sell some of those, right? But not only are they influential psychologically, but they're also influential in their actual physical holdings. And they're a bigger portion of the market than they've been in, you know, at least in the past couple of years, right? And so I think the eventual roll off of that and the selling one day of the balance sheet is going to be super interesting. So I think that they've learned that they're important. And I think that they've always sort of realized that, but I think the social media age has amplified every movement that the Fed is doing and what they're saying. And then also mechanically, like they are just such a, such a big portion of, of the overall market at this point. And people have sort of become to rely on them to intervene, to step in if, if things go wrong. And that that's like a whole other thing. But Joey, what, what do you think about what the Fed is going to think about all this? Yeah, so I, I came at this at a, like a bit of a different angle. My fear is that they're sort of going to overlearn the lessons of 2021 and like memory hole or, or underlearn the lessons of 2020. And it's weird because the narrative like post 2008 was like, nobody, we didn't do enough to support the economy. We didn't do enough to support employment. And and the response during the 2020 crisis, like 
was we're gonna we're gonna back everything we're gonna put as many credit facilities as we can out there we're gonna be as accommodative as we can possibly be because we see how bad things are going in the real economy and the the flip side of that was that like over the last two years you've had really substantial growth in employment and in like gdp growth in a way you didn't like post the 2008 crisis my my favorite personal graph is like a graph of of fixed non-residential investment because you could see like after 2008 it just cratered and it doesn't pass like the 2008 mark until i think like 2014 2015 if you look at like the the 2020 recession it craters again and then it bounces right back up to basically where it was before within a couple of years and that's like a substantial you know change in in response function from privacy sector driven by monetary and fiscal response that was really strong. And like the the labor market is, it's good, it's tight. There's very much no denying that, but like there still is a lot, a lot of work to be done on employment. So I always, inevitably, I always end up comparing countries to Japan, but like Japan, 86% of people in their prime working age are employed. In the US, it's like 80%. Even like Canada, it's higher. In every other G7 country except Italy, which is like the perennial last place finisher, it's higher. <laughs> I'm sorry to everyone who's listening from Italy, but it's it's true. <laughs> um, if you're like the, the Federal Reserve, the coming crises are still going to be really rough. And in my opinion, are still going to be on the demand side where you have like a shrinking global population. You have a lot of need for investment in green energy and other like climate climate adaption techniques that's going to require looser monetary policy. And there's still an issue where employment is relatively low, lower than it should be. And so my fear is that they kind of overlearn the lesson of 2021 and they say, okay, well here we stimulated the economy too much. The next time there's a crisis, we have to be extra careful that we don't stimulate the economy too much. I'm a big advocate for like nominal targets, partially because it, it sort of takes this discretion away from the Federal Reserve. We're saying, hey, we're just going to keep nominal spending. We're just going to keep nominal incomes moving at a similar pace, no matter what happens, and then let like the real economy do its thing. I think that ends up working better, partially because you don't have these situations where the Fed like seesaws from overreacting, underreacting <laughs> every time. One of the questions that we got asked was, what is your advice for students who want to do what you do? <laughs> we have two different answers, obviously, because we do two different things. But for me, I had a pretty nonlinear path to where I am now. So I actually began trading options when I was in high school. I had a finance blog all throughout college. And then I was sort of iterating on finance before I was ever in the real world. So I got a lot of reps in, in the finance space before I ever like had a real finance job. But I also sold cars. I did research internships in economics. You know, I babysat kids. Uh, basically, I wanted to keep all my options open for everything. And I think that's just super important for students to do if they can. It's just like try to take on as many jobs as you possibly can because you're going to learn so much. So I chose my first job at uh, a mutual fund manager because it was a rotational program and it wasn't going to be one job. It was going to be a, a new job every three months. And I was like, I'll learn a ton there and I won't be stuck in, a, in one role. And I did learn a ton there. And so I ended up leaving them about a year ago to join a tech company. And when I left, I was like, I just need to figure things out because what the heck is going on? It was the middle of the pandemic. And I think everybody went through their own existential crisis. That was mine. And I was like, I need to really just follow my heart, which some people will tell you not to do. And I don't know if this is good advice yet. So, but I was like, I need to do, I need to try this out. And that my, my main thing with everything is like education, right? So how can we get more people to understand like their role as an economic entity, like the system that they exist in? Because I feel like the more people that understand the world around them, the more that we can progress, right? Like I think one of the 
the big problems is that we just don't have enough people understanding the world. And so my advice would be to remain open, to talk to as many people that you can, do as many things that you can, and don't let fear dictate what you do. That's a lesson that I learn everything every single day because I'm constantly afraid imposter syndrome is real and don't give up on yourself. So like I came from a very non-target school and from Kentucky that matters, but you know, nobody was going to be paying attention to me. And, and I wasn't the ideal candidate. I didn't have a network. I, I knew essentially nothing. And you sort of have to be your own biggest fan and never underestimate the power of questions. So I was definitely like that annoying kid that would send emails to my favorite authors and be like, Hey, I think that this book was amazing. Here's a million questions about this stuff. And sometimes I would get answers and sometimes I wouldn't, but basically you just have to remain curious. And I think that a lot of people find a lot of things interesting, but that's really different than applied curiosity. So I would just say like the things that you find interesting, try to become curious about them because you can really learn a lot that way and, and just explore as you can. Um, so that I feel like I'm uh, on a soapbox at this present moment, which I don't, I feel really uncomfortable doing that, but that those are the lessons that I think I've learned. And that's what I would recommend to students who are maybe in a similar spot. Joey, what do you think? No, that was really good. <laughs> I, I think it's it's like a difficult question always. And I think it is also very difficult because people who are like very young and I'm asking people who are like only kind of young for, for answers, like what's going on in the world. And I often feel like I don't, you know, I don't have great advice. And I also want to like preface this by saying like, in, in my opinion, the things I, the things I write about, the things we're like talking about today is just sort of a passion project for me. It's not anything that I do. It's not my full-time job. So like take everything I said with great salt. but I'm a, a big advocate for staying in school. I think there's like all, all the documented evidence is like the longer that you, you spend consciously studying something, the better you get at it. And so if you really are truly passionate about a certain topic, like you should go as far as you can in the academic world with it. I will also say that like the way I have learned is really different. And I think the way that I have learned post-graduation is that I just sort of find something passionate about and I try to like, as you say, like iterate on it a bit. And I think I learn a lot more end up like it and it's like a good piece of social scaffolding to do that rather than just like being a consumer of uh, information, like trying to be at least a little bit a producer of information. And like it builds it builds your skills, it builds your knowledge base and it's like good this isn't quite the correct term, but it's like good social support. But like I, you know, feel good about something like this is people are listening to us and that's like a good support system. And it's also holds me accountable to not be, to be informed about the things I'm saying about, because if I, if I said something wrong, people are going to let me know. And I think the big, the big thing I wish I had done. And if I were to look back, like the big regret is like, I never built like a good support network. I was like moving around a lot. And like, I love where I am here in DC. But it took a lot after I moved back to DC to be like, okay, I'm going to consciously build a number of people who I, who I trust, who trust me, who are like going to support me. And that's like the core of any personal success is having like good friends. So like make some good friends and, and spend a lot of time with them. This is the last question. What is your hottest take that doesn't have to do with finance or econ? And <laughs> I'm going to get back up on my soapbox, I guess, but I've written about this a lot and I talk about it all the time on my YouTube channel. Like I really love people. Like I think humans are super beautiful and lovely and amazing. And there's so many cool things that we do. Like if you just think about technology in general, like I think it's Dolly, the, the AI thing that people are now tweeting about that makes these things. Like the fact that humans 
humans made that, even though it's a computer generating images, that's super cool. But then also like people suck. <laughs> and part of the reason that people end up sucking is because money or power or whatever. But I would say like most people generally tend to be good people. And on the flip side of that, I do really worry. And this is almost ironic because I utilize social media. We're on social media right now. But I think that we're all a little sad. And I think that it's only going to get worse because we have the extreme opinions that are reflected by social media and people get really angry, I find, you know, in comment sections or that freedom to be behind a screen. And I think that leads to a lot of weirdness in, in the brain. So I don't really know what to make of it, but I think social media has sort of <laughs> erupted a part of us that is normally devoted to empathy and love and, and has made it a little bit angry. And I also think that we have a broader passion crisis where people feel pretty disconnected from the world around them. And I think that is sort of the underscore of a lot of things that we've talked about today is like all these things are happening, but I think a lot of people feel disconnected from the world around them or don't understand the mechanics of the world that is happening at like around them, right? I think that that leads to a lot of weirdness. So I think that everyone does have a passion, but we haven't been encouraged or usually supported to explore that. And I think that leads to a lot of cognitive dissonance. So getting off my, my soapbox, Joey, what do you think? Yeah, it's very funny. You can always tell that we could tell we wrote these completely separately because when I was like, what's your hot take? I was basically like, oh, ho hockey's the best sport. Here's why. <laughs> so completely unrelated. But to your like, to your point, I do think there's, I think it's like everyone feels a little rough, especially during the pandemic. I know I have like felt a lot worse uh, and I like, it's almost, we're almost where we are two years in at this point where it feels a little hard to like consciously remember what my life was like before the pandemic. But I do think it was like a pretty big global shock to like loneliness. I think that's like a, a dominating emotion among young people, among um, old people. And I think it's something that's getting worse, partially because of the internet, but also partially because of what's been going on in the real world over the last two years. And so I think to circle back a little bit where it's like consciously build a support network, like coming out of the pandemic, my goal is like consciously to be outside more. <laughs> so like we had this big shock where people weren't allowed to experience a lot of things. I think now is like a good opportunity as the pandemic is waning to like go out and try to make up for lost time. Some of the questions that we were asked, you can find the complete answers on our respective Substack. So my I'm, mine is kyla.substack.com. And Joey, I don't know how to pronounce your Substack. Is it's, it? It's, <laughs> it's a Latin word. It's a Latin word. It's it's a pricketas. It's spelled with oh. a C, but it's pronounced with a K. Just 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 go to my profile. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> so a uh, kyla.substack.com. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining. This was super fun, and we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Well, thanks everybody for coming. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks everybody. I hope that you enjoyed this. I will be back this week with another piece around leadership and bias and just doing a little bit more high level overview of what I've been noticing, especially around China's lockdown. And then also with what's going on with Elon Musk and Twitter, just want to have some thoughts out there about that. And I will also be launching some sort of interview style series soon. I'm not sure exactly how I want to do that. If it's going to be like a panel, I really think that there's more need for people interviewing, not only, you know, CEOs, 
CEOs or money managers, but also policy leaders. So I don't think that we get a mix. Those people never get in the same room, at least in like the mainstream modern discourse. Like, yes, like during BIS Innovation Week, they're going to be talking on the same panels, but I don't see that a lot. And that's something that I think would be really fun to work on. I'm also going to be in New York, I think, for a little bit of the summer and hoping to do some in-person events then. I'm just thinking about different structures there as well. And then hopefully going to launch this sort of like daily idea that I have as well. So hopefully I'm not, the main goal is to, you know, help people as much as possible and different people like different types of media. So, you know, you try one thing, doesn't work, you know, you go back to square one. So I hope that all of you are doing well. And thanks so much for sticking with me during all this. And I appreciate you and I will see you very soon. And go ahead and subscribe to Joey's Substack. Go ahead and subscribe to my Substack if you're not already subscribed. And I look forward to chatting with you all again soon. Bye everyone.